0: God, thank you so much for this day, Um, and while it is cold and icy outside, um, you have um, brought us here in this place to wrestle out what it looks like to, um, to hitch our wagon to you, to pledge our allegiance to you. And God, I pray for our church as we continue to grow and we continue to wrestle with what it looks like to be a family and to be a community um, in the midst of a culture that has very Babylon empire tendencies to it. Um, would you show us what it looks like to link arms together, to trust in your, in your ways to follow you as the slain lamb. And God, I lift up our church right now in this moment just with finances. Would you, we, we've always experienced your, your supply. We've always experienced your showing up. We've always experienced your uh, great gifts. And so will you show us how to be generous together? We pray these things in your name, amen. Okay, good news and bad news. Good news is we are on our third to the last week of the Revelation series, and it's almost to this really beautiful, hope-filled part. The bad news is we're going to be talking about Armageddon, wrath, and the lake of fire. (laughs) Now, here's what I want to share with you. It's actually very much part of the hope-filled part. But um, there's a lot of work that we have to do. Now, we're in the middle of Advent, and last week Tim Lovell kicked off Advent for us. And if you missed that, please go online and check that out because he really did set us um, on a great trajectory that we're able to use these themes in Revelation to talk about Jesus is coming, because this is what the rest of the book is about. Advent is this beautiful picture of how the first Advent is Jesus' first coming and walking the earth and, and uh, the cross and the resurrection, and we live in between that and the second Advent. And what's interesting is in Roman kind of imperial propaganda There was always conversation. There was always the use of the word advent. The coming of Caesar. The advent of Domitian. These are like similar words that were used in all of this Roman kind of Caesar emperor worship. That the the church, that the followers of Jesus co-opted into their worship of Jesus. Now, when it comes to Revelation... People have tended to have two responses. When I talk to people, people are like, "What are you teaching on?" or "What's going on?" You know, people have two responses. One, oh, I don't even touch Revelation. I don't even, I don't even want to, I don't even want to read it. I don't want to open it up. It's so weird. Or two, some people are like, "Oh yeah, I've got a chart. <laughs> I've got a timeline. I've got color coded and things and lines and graphs." And, Um, our goal has been to talk about the context of the book, the genre, the themes, and how it all hits us thousands of years later. And along the way, we've learned some new vocabulary words. So we're going to throw some vocabulary words up there, and we're going to have a little chat about some of these, okay? First one is apocalypse. Is that up there? Okay. We're just not going to... Maybe I forgot to do that. I forgot to do that. Where's Carissa? I forgot to do that, yeah. Carissa deals with all our slides, so she was probably just panicking. Were you panicking? I'm sorry. I ended up not doing that. I've had like five hours of sleep, so four or five hours. Apocalypse. What is apocalypse? It, the, the actual word means unveiling. It means uncovering. And it's actually a form of literature uh, apocalyptic literature that is highly symbolic. It was common in Jesus' day. It's not common in ours. The closest context that you and I have to apocalyptic literature is something called a political cartoon, where there's big imagery. We understand the meanings. Sometimes it looks pretty violent. Um, and, and, and all of this literature, this apocalyptic literature, has got hyperlinks back to the Old Testament. So you always got to follow the hyperlink back. Prophecy. We've talked about prophecy. In an Old Testament prophecy, it's not predictive necessarily. It has some prediction to it. But it's always to call a generation to faithfulness. And it's a warning a lot of times to call this generation to faithfulness to Jesus. Uh, We've talked about the word epistle, which is a letter. Which is a standard Roman letter, and this was written as a standard Roman letter with introductions and who it's to. And there are seven, you know, seven times it says, "Blessed are those who hear the words and understand." Um, what's a lampstand? A church, right? What is what is the Lamb? Jesus. Right, and he appears many times as already being slain, a sacrificial image throughout the book. It's a central image to the whole book. What is a beast, a nation, or a kingdom? What is a horn, a ruler, or a king, or a power centered on a human being? What is Babylon? A city, right? A nation? Anybody? Stinky. A stinky city. Okay, yes. Or it might, be really, it might smell really good, and that's the real tricky part, right? It was, it's, it's, it's an archetype of, it's an actual city. It's an actual nation. It's actually an archetype of nations throughout history. But in this context, it's actually Rome. We learned that a few weeks ago. If you didn't catch Gabe's teaching on that. Well, who who is the dragon? Anybody? There it is. Yes, <laughs> Satan. Satan, the devil. Yeah. Um, and then the day of the Lord. Remember that one, that hairy one. <laughs> the day of the Lord is a is a day spoken of throughout the Old Testament when a nation was being judged when another nation would come in, and the day of the Lord happened to Egypt, it happened to Pharaoh, it happened to Babylon, it happened to Israel when they were Babylon-like. And we're seeing that happen here. Now, today, this is a hard one, because for some of us, this will be a little jarring. This may make you frustrated, Um, You may have only ever heard the book of Revelation interpreted in literal form, meaning the words have literal meanings. And this is where the Revelation reading literally versus literarily has some huge implications. And the reason why I'm setting us up for this is because it has a whole lot to do with how we see our role, how we see other human beings around us, and how we think rightly about the character and nature of Jesus Christ. And we're going to start in chapter 16. And the goal isn't for you to have 100% agreement with me. That's not the goal of this. We are a church that wrestles with Scripture. And so you may find things that you disagree with me on today. And that's okay. What we're trying to aim towards is who Jesus is. And so we're going to start in chapter 16. Um, chapter 16 is kind of towards the end of this cycle of three. There's three cycles of seven. You got bowls and trumpets and the whole thing. And remember, we talked about plagues and all these things that are like a callback to Egypt and callback to the day of the Lord. So these are three cycles of this day of the Lord's judgment imagery happening. And we get to Revelation 16, verse 16. And it says this, Then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about Armageddon here in the, in the future of this conversation, but I just want to kind of set the stage of this battle image that you've, you and I have, have read about and we've heard about. There's been movies about it. Um, people talk about, oh, the Armageddon is coming, and, you know, these are all like really disaster movies. I love those. Uh, Day After Tomorrow, things like that. It's good stuff. Um, but these battle scenes, right? And this battle scene involves uh, Babylon, and then there's the dragon and the beast and this religious beast. There's there's a military beast and a religious beast. We went through all of that. Chapter 18, okay, is a lament for Babylon. Like there's this worship scene and there's singing and there's this poetry about this lament for this nation, for Babylon. Um, And then there's a... warning within that lament that says get out of babylon (laughs) like if you are in babylon if you have woven yourself into babylon you need to get out and then there is this final battle part one because when you read this you're trying to if you're trying to put it in a timeline linear thing it's really difficult There's final battle, part one, chapter 19. Then there's a judgment scene after the battle. And then there's a final battle, part two. And then there's another judgment scene. And so, um, basically, two battle scenes, two judgment scenes, four scenes. I feel like I'm playing Pictionary. Sounds like, (laughs) four words, yeah. So what I'm about to suggest is that this is not a theology of the afterlife. That this is a theatrical and symbolic picture of the final containment. Listen to me really carefully on this. The final containment and destruction of evil. And that evil will never again, ever, ever, ever again, have any power or interaction with God's creation. Now, that's what I like to call peace. And that's advent theme for today peace so it's weird right Armageddon wrath lake of fire peace that God is going to do something if God is truly good that God is going to do something with evil for one final time Revelation 19 here we go you ready battle scene number one I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. Now, notice, he wages war with justice. Not revenge, not punishment, but with justice. His eyes are like blazing fire. We get that from Daniel. and In fact, we get a lot of this from Daniel 7. And on his head are many crowns. His, he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood. Okay, who is this rider? It's Jesus, right? It's the first time in the whole book that he has not been pictured as a lamb. He is a rider on a horse, Whose blood is it? His own. It is not, the battle hasn't started yet. Okay? It's his own blood. We're trained to see, John the Revelator is training us to see that the central image of the whole book is a slain lamb and not a beast. It's pre-battle blood. And he's speaking justice. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword that comes from Isaiah. We'll get into some of this more here in a bit. Uh, With which to strike down the nations, he will rule them with an iron scepter, which comes from Psalm 2. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has written uh, has this name written King of kings and Lord of lords and I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair Come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings generals and the mighty of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. So remember, one military beast, one religious beast, they were both beasts. That was a conversation a long time ago who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Merry Christmas, right? (laughs) Now, now, And this is where the wrestling begins. Is this a literal image? I hope not, right? (laughs) Jesus' declaration, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords, is not literally slaughtering people. And we're going to get to this here in a little bit, but there's a lot of Old Testament destruction callback stuff. You know, birds in the air and, the, and the, there, whenever you saw birds, you saw a ba- it was the end of a battle scene. There was a lot of things happening. You read in the Old Testament things like uh, when, Edom, when God said he was going to punish Edom and it said that the smoke will rise forever. Did the smoke literally rise forever? Now, the idea is that we're going to remember this forever, that this is something that will be in our consciousness forever because of the ways of Edom, but but there's literally not a a place um, near Israel where smoke is still rising from a battle 3,000 years ago. So hold that thought. Some of you are like, but I want it to be literal. Hold the thought for a second. When I say this is symbolic language, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying that John has something beautiful and bigger going on here. Us really thinking, okay, that Jesus is going to ride in on a horse with a sword out of his mouth And he's going to stab two million people with it. I know that sounds funny. I know some of you are laughing, but I just need you to hang with me. This is really hard for us because we are not used to this genre of literature. And this is where the meat hits the street. All right? Then we see a judgment scene. Revelation 20, 1 through 15. And I saw an angel coming out of heaven having the key to the abyss. And this is a reference to where evil dwells. And holding in his hand a great chain, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So interesting when the writer, uh, the Hebrew of this is a thousand years, is actually this Hebrew vision of 10 by 10 by 10. 10 times 10 times 10. Or as we will see next week this, this vision of a cube. This, it, <laughs> I know this is going to sound really weird, but um, this is some of the Hebrew kind of like imagery stuff. It's a, it's a way of saying a long time until God finishes his purposes. And, and numbers in the book of Revelation, some people take them literally, they're actually symbolic of kinds of time. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. And here comes the judgment. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. Who are those people? The martyrs, yes. Yes. They think vindication here, not retribution and think vindication. So they they chose to follow the slain lamb, not the beast, and they were killed for it. And now they are sitting in judgment. They had not worshiped the beast or its image, and they had not received its mark on their foreheads uh, or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So there's this part here where there's an interlude, and, and uh, scholars have just kind of like, tracked the literary prose of this, and there's an interlude here, and one of the most famous kind of Revelation scholars is a guy named Richard Bachman, and he writes this, and I just thought this was really fascinating. Some of you are probably already bored, but that's okay. He says this, the primary function of this blissful interlude in Revelation is to reassure the church, remember it was written to actual churches, that its martyrs will be victorious and thereby to reinforce the church's faithful witness. In effect, the scene recognizes a special class of faithful witnesses who have suffered the ultimate fate, and therefore deserve and will receive special recognition by God. As co-regents with Christ, even before New Jerusalem, those judged and oppressed by Babylon will now rule and judge. So that's just the picture here of this first judgment scene. Um, Then there's this second judgment scene that happens. And it says, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from the prison and will go out to deceive the nations in four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, that comes from Ezekiel, and to gather them for battle in number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. The fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. Uh, They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what is it... Quick question. Um, What does it mean if beasts are nations for nations to be tormented day and night forever and ever? It's just like a wild thought. I don't have an answer. How do you torment empire? Right? These are like big, kind of things to think about. And then there's this last, final judgment scene. Okay? And then we're going to get into some implications. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. It's a Jewish way of saying God. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. You know, it's so fascinating. Some of the reading back there, back in my world, is... um, um, in ancient Near East cities, you would have a book that detailed everybody who lived within the city. And if you weren't found in that book, you were an outsider. These are, these are just normal kind of, like we don't have that here. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Imagine that scene. (laughs) And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. What does that mean? That death and the realm of the dead are thrown into the lake of fire. I mean, it's just like a wow moment right here. The big argument is that those entities will be destroyed that death will be destroyed, that the realm of the dead will be destroyed, and never to plague humanity again. Okay? These are just like really huge concepts for us. And some of you are like, I just want to watch football. But like, these are like big brain kind of like, that's a lot. Then it says, the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. These are big conversations. Um, Today is not the day to have the conversation on eternal conscious torment. Um, And some of us have different backgrounds when it comes to understanding what hell is. Um, We're not getting into that today. I'm not avoiding it, but there's just that's I want to stick with this idea that God is going to eradicate evil. And I actually think that when we participate in evil, there's a huge warning for us. And so the big question for us today is this How does all this relate to each other? I mean, I was raised in a system that said this was all in the future and was all going to happen chronologically. And that Jesus would return, zap the nations, lock Satan up for a thousand years, then he is released, he raises an army, then God deals with that army, and then there's a throne judgment. And it seemed very neat and ordered and, and just sanitized a little bit. Others of us, I mean, I'm beginning to see this story differently. I'm beginning to see this this beautiful literature just woven all throughout Scripture. I'm beginning to see it differently. What I think, and you can disagree, the Revelator is saying, and this is consistent with the other battle scene in Revelation 12, is that we're talking about the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, that Jesus dismantled spiritual powers and vindicated the martyrs in his death and resurrection, and that this age is the thousand-year age under which the saints reign, and we attest as the church to that reign, and then there's a final judgment that takes place. I mean, hearkening back to the Apostles' Creed, the, the church throughout history has believed that one day Jesus will come back and re-level everything. And that's judgment, to judge the living and the dead, or as it says, the quick and the dead, which if you're into Westerns, it's pretty good. Never mind, you have to be like probably over 50. Anyhow, this is where we need to remember the original audience small house churches that would have heard some of this language is Daniel 7. They, they're seeing kind of a replay or in, in a sense like a like a, a filling in, a coloring in of Daniel 7 applying to Jesus. And so in some ways revelation is not new stuff. It's, it's some new stuff but it's like it's pulling from all these Old Testament themes, and it's the Day of the Lord filtered through the slain lamb, and it comes to its conclusion. And I want to talk about Armageddon, and I want to talk about the wrath of God, and I want to talk about who Jesus is, because when we start with a literal picture versus a literary picture, uh, we cannot we cannot pick and choose. So this is this is the really important part and hang with me we can't take some of john's vision literally and some of it symbolically okay apocalyptic literature does not work that way we cannot read literature differently than it was intended um, one way or the other so like i said this is like a political cartoon in many ways The truth of that symbolic reading of it is actually, in my opinion, more powerful than if we read it literally because it has so much to do with us. Now, let's start with Armageddon. Few words have captured the American imagination more than Armageddon. You would think that the word Armageddon would be up in Scripture more than once, but it just shows up once, just one time. And Armageddon is the Hebrew word meaning Valley of Megiddo, which is Har Megiddo, which is where we get the word Armageddon, okay? And it's one of the most visited archaeological sites, and I was going to nerd out, throw pictures, and do the thing, but I decided not to. It's this amazing city. Megiddo is this amazing city that rises 200 feet above the valley floor. And you can Google this. It's the craziest thing. And the reason why it's 200 feet above the valley floor is because it's the result of that city being destroyed and rebuilt 26 times. That's a lot of times. I want you to think about that for a second. Like, that would be iconic. If someone's like, oh, Megiddo, oh, Megiddo. Like, (laughs) a lot of stuff went down in Megiddo over the years. And it sits on this route (laughs) that if you were to walk from you know, like Rome or uh, all the way over from like Syria or all these different places that have happened, all these different nations throughout history. And if you were to try to get to, you would want to stay by the coast, okay, and away from the mountains into this fertile valley. And this is where so many battles have happened throughout world history, whether it's the Egyptians and the Assyrians or, I mean, it doesn't matter. This is a place of battle. This is like a place cursed by War. And when you say, Oh, I'm going to hang out in Megiddo, people are like, You sure you want that? Because this is where it all goes down all the time, over and over and over and over again. So for John's original readers, references to Har Megiddo, they would think battle, right? So let me just test this on you. When I say, Beach, what do you think about? Yeah, sand, nice. When I say Omaha Beach, what do you think about? Oh, man. That's what's happening here. To make reference to Megiddo, it's this idea of war is looming there is going to be something that's going to happen that is brutal that keeps happening over and over and over and over armageddon is less about let's just back up it's this demonic seduction of accusation and empire and propaganda that always leads humanity to another bloody battle always Armageddon shouldn't be seen as the end of war it should be seen as endless war we cannot war our way out of war world war 1 is called the what the war to end all wars 17 million people died in World War I. What did it give us? World War II. 60 million people. So what, what we're talking about here is this, this vitriolic kind of human impulse to keep doing the same things. And what did we get? We, 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 John's apocalyptic vision doesn't predict an inevitable war where 200 people, million people will be killed in the Middle East Rather, it's predicting the sum of our own choices all the time. Either we follow the lamb into the shalom, the peace of New Jerusalem, or we follow the beast into the horrors of our Megiddo. And that leads us to this conversation about wrath. We have um, a difficult time as Americans dealing with this idea of wrath, the wrath of God, the will of God. And I think the wrath of God and the will of God in the book of Revelation, if we we follow the beast, we will end up in Armageddon. But that's not God's will. This is the wrath of God. It's called the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation 6.16. The wrath of God is divine consent, to our own deadly human trajectory we follow the beast we get what we follow but if we follow the lamb we will end up in the new jerusalem and this is the will of god and god's will is never armageddon god's will is always new jerusalem and so when we read this literally, literally and not literarily, Armageddon is the final inevitable war in the Middle East that must occur before Jesus' return. And this is where we have huge theological consequences. Because if we believe that there must be a mega war in the Middle East before Jesus can return, we're going to be crappy peacemakers. We're gonna actually be rooting, think about that. We're gonna actually need to root for war. And this is that weird spot that we were in earlier in October, right? I, I've had some folks call me up hey, like my family's like telling me to go get toilet paper and stock up, because it's happening. Like We shouldn't be looking forward for that. We sh- this is like a fatalistic eschatology. This is like requiring like end-time hyperviolence, the slaughtering of millions. And to be honest, that sounds more like ISIS than following the Prince of Peace. And I know these are hard things, but we just have to wrestle all this out. Do you know how this is the saddest thing? We're just because we're honest. If you look back throughout all the years and they've done polling and polling and polling on voting and how people vote and why people vote, some of this eschatology, some of this thinking about the end times has influenced how many evangelical Christians vote in regards to spending. And I'm not trying to like be a jerk here because I was, I was waving the banner for that Iraq war. And I'm sick to my stomach about it. And there's something in our eschatology that pushes us towards, well, there's got to be a big war. So let's load up. And I just don't think that's the way of Jesus. So I want to, I want to read this Literarily, So to allow me to emphatically say, as, as best as I know how, there doesn't have to be another war for Jesus to return. And you might disagree with me, and that's okay, that's all right, but God has not written, in my opinion, an unalterable script by which there has to be this huge war. Uh, this is the wrath of God. This is the... Um, <laughs> inevitable outcome of what it looks like for us to follow the beast. And so if we embrace the way of the lamb, we get new Jerusalem. Um, And so the final thing here is who is Jesus? Well, kind of, and this is what I call it. This is what theologians call Christology. Who is Jesus? Some people will tell me, hey, he came first as a lamb, but he's going to come back as a lion. I'm like, what does that (laughs) mean? What do you mean? Like what? By this, they mean this the nonviolent Jesus of the Gospels is going to mutate into what they imagine is a hyperviolent Jesus of revelation. But it's weird because Scripture, and Scripture interprets Scripture, Scripture tells us that He's the same yesterday and today and forever. So how do we go from a picture of Jesus renouncing violence and calling his followers to love their enemies to a picture in the final pages of the Bible where the same Jesus abandons this vision of nonviolence and peace and ultimately says it's unworkable, we've got to change gears, and you hear this vicious portrayal of this divine violence. I don't, see, when we literalize the militant kind of images of Revelation, we arrive at the conclusion that at the end, even Jesus gives up on love and resorts to violence. And we have to avoid this reading of Revelation. Like, you can't pick and choose. Like, if earlier in Revelation we hear about locusts that look like horses with human faces and women's hair and lion's teeth, We're like, ah, that's like a symbol. And we pick those as symbols. um, And there's a seven-headed beast from the sea with a body of a leopard. And and we're like, yeah, but that's symbolic. But then we get to the part where Jesus is riding on a flying white horse wearing a blood-drenched robe with a sword protruding from his mouth. And we think, nope, that's literal. We can't do that. The question is, what is John communicating with us in this creative symbol? And this is, this is the part that's really important. The rider on the white horse is called Faithful and True. I want you to remember that, Faithful and True. And his name is the Word of God. His name isn't the Bible. The Bible isn't the Word of God. We've talked about this before. The Bible is the Bible. The Word of God is Jesus. John is not depicting a literal event in the future, but giving us a symbolic reality about the present. So John is depicting this glorious triumph of the word of God, Jesus Christ. The one called the word of God is not riding a red horse of war, but a white horse of triumph. Jesus does not overcome evil by war, but by his word, his word. This is how Jesus wages his righteous war, with his mouth, with truth, with his own blood on his clothes. Jesus wages war like a, he doesn't wage it like a murderous beast, but instead like a slaughtered lamb. Scripture interprets scripture. So think about it. After riding the peace donkey into Jerusalem, and everybody was shaking their palm branches saying, save now, Hosanna, save now, which was a hearkening back to Jude Maccabees and the violent revolution that happened years before, and Jesus wept over the city because that's what they wanted, but that's not why he was there. So it's a contrast. His peaceable kingdom is a contrast to the violent empires of the pagan world. Jesus does not later contradict himself by riding through like Genghis Khan Killing people. And when the, uh, Richard Bachman says, uh, throw this on the screen as we land the plane here, when the slaughtered lamb is seen in the midst of the divine throne in heaven, the meaning is that Christ's sacrificial death belongs to the way God rules the world. That is the way God rules the world. Jesus always rules from the cross, never from an Apache war helicopter. John stresses that Jesus reigns through self-sacrifice. That Jesus' robe is soaked in his own blood. That he doesn't shed the blood of his enemies. Jesus willingly sheds his own blood. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The rider on the white horse is a slaughtered lamb, not a slaughtering beast. So why does John, and this is the final part, why does John, set the whole symbolic war in the Jezreel Valley, which is the valley of Megiddo, Har Megiddo. Why does he do that? Remember, we've used all these callbacks to the Old Testament, and we've talked about Roman propaganda, right? Things they would have known. And this is where a bit of historical information goes a long way. Before and after the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the imperial, there was an imperial uh, guard that was called the advanced guard, the the tip of the spear legion of Roman soldiers called the Sexta Ferrata. Okay, I'm gonna throw this on the screen the Sexta Ferrata, the sixth ironclad legion okay? They were stationed, they were encamped in the Jezreel Valley. They were camped in Megiddo. That's where they were encamped. That's what they were. They were on alert at any time to squelch an uprising from the Jewish people because of years and years of violent unrest. Uh, When you read Maccabees, when you read all the stuff, they were prepared, okay? Now, we th- I think this inspired John's um, and, and, and writing and why he set the, the war here in his symbolic writing. Because the legion was known as Fidelis et Constance, which means faithful and steadfast. Now, if you're paying attention, John, with a wink to the reader, is saying the rider on the white horse is called Faithful and True. And I think he's, like, playing around, man. He's just having so much fun, like, bringing in all these images. And and John applies the motto of the Roman Imperial (laughs) Legion to Jesus. That's crazy. And it's something that could have totally been recognized by them but we miss it years later. John certainly doesn't believe that Jesus is going to come conquer the the Roman legion by killing them. John knows that Jesus will conquer the Roman legion the same way he conquered the, the demoniac legion in Mark 5. I mean, we gotta, we got to bring Jesus into all of it, right? So eventually Rome gets conquered by the word of Christ, but all this beauty is lost when we imagine Jesus coming back on a flying white horse and literally killing 200 million people, which, curiously, during that time, that's what the, th- the thought was of the entire population of the planet. So that's Interesting. Jesus is not coming back to renounce the Sermon on the Mount and kill 200 million people. If you were nervous about that, I just want you to know this, and this is just me, but I've been conquered by His Word. He's still conquering me by His Word. And there will be a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's what it says. Not minus the 200 million that Jesus stabbed with a sword out of his mouth, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because they have been conquered by his, by his, the justice out of his mouth. And our job is not to speculate. Our job is not to categorize people Our job is to bear witness to the slain lamb by doing slain lamb things. That's our job. Revelation is about the lamb being victorious. And the reason we follow Jesus is because he begins to strip the hell out of us. He strips the hell out of us. And for us to be living fully human lives of love and flourishing, he strips it out of us. That's why we talk about words like surrender and allegiance. We are being restored into the image of God, and we are being brought into peace with one another. And this is why we frame this whole idea of discipleship as the joyful relearning of what it means to be human. And so the lake of fire is a place where evil and everything opposed to the way of Jesus is removed. And there will come a moment when evil will be permanently confined, never to pollute again. And that is enough for me. And so I want to close with this final quote. Um, I think, um, yes. Scott McKnight says this, this is the day on which evil will be eliminated from God's creation. So the people of God can live in safety and peace and justice, and so they can forever bask in the light of the Lamb. And his point is that these two belong together, eliminating evil and establishing justice. Nothing would be more chest swelling to the seven churches than to know that someday the Lamb would rule, someday they would be safe to worship God, and someday the evils of Babylon would be erased In a long forgotten history. Let me pray. God, we wrestle. We wrestle with this. And whether we all come together on what this means, and I mean, this is just a big mystery, so much. But no matter what it is, it seems to be pointing to us becoming a people who take very seriously our allegiances. That This is a prophetic warning for us to stay faithful. To put our faith, not only our faith and our trust in you, Jesus, as the ultimate slain lamb who... Broke the power of sin and death and allowed us to enter into new life. But also as an invitation to do what you are all about to love enemies, to do all the Sermon on the Mount stuff, to be peacemakers. To live humbly, to love unwaveringly, to trust you completely. And God, this is why we gather. We gather because we need, we absolutely have to link arms on this. We live in a culture that is very Babylon, very empire. And we've got to come together And link arms and become and and encourage each other to become more slain lamb people. God, you want to strip the hell out of us. You want us to be New Jerusalem people. And show us our way forward. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I'm going to throw four resources back up. Some of you are like, I've really got to read now because I disagree with everything he said. I want you to read. If you... <laughs> These are great resources. And um, I would encourage you, if you want to go deeper, we couldn't cover everything, and it's almost 11 a.m. So I'm going to have you stand, and I'm going to send you with a little bit of a benediction here. May you, may we wrestle, choose to intentionally wrestle with our place as slain lamb people in a world that lives like a beast. Amen.